Welcome to News From Where We Are, number four, the Radical Friendship series. Birdfield's cultural podcast grounded in news from where we are. We may be experiencing all kinds of restrictions in our lives due to the pandemic, but we still have access to thriving networked cultures from around the world. And this podcast is dedicated to the collaborative, imaginative field work of artists, techies and activists informing how we organise, imagine and build solidarity, good health and post-capitalist realities. Working together and supporting others to do the same. In 2021, we celebrate 25 years of radical friendship at Thurberfield. We revisit and open up conversations with some of the fascinating and radical people with whom we have worked and collaborated with through the years from the internet to post-digital contexts. They are changing culture, their lives and the lives of their communities. We are interested in unearthing an ecological economy relational understanding and lived lives alongside survival strategies, critical thinking and grassroots systems of peer and individual engagement as part of the art context. We are examining power and how lives get lived on whose terms. We have two excellent interviews by Filippo Florenzin with Oria Harvey about her new bodies of work as sculptures using digital processes and handwork as either physical artifacts or virtual spaces. And we also have Morrison Alayahari uh, and how her work deals with the political, social and cultural contradictions we face every day. Next, we have Josephine Bosma interviewing and discussing with Barak Gottlieb. They have a playful theoretical conversation, a post-most talk, where they explore the pros and cons of the use of the prefix post in terms of as postmodern, post-digital, etc. As usual, we have special guest appearances of experimental noisemakers and music, which includes AGF, poem producer, the new single California Ideology by Eric Salvaggio's band who are called the organising committee and a short soundscape by people like us. So enjoy the programme. Thank you. Hello everybody, today I'm with an artist, video game designer and educator based in Rome who creates sculptures for real-time simulation and 3D printing, blending virtual and handmade. She has been pioneering internet art, video games and extended reality since 1999. She once stated that she believes that sculpture needs to embrace the fact that you are touching it. Let's welcome Aurea. Hi Aurea, how are you? Hi, hello. <laughs> Thanks, Filippo. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Um, I'd like to hear about the origin of your creative approach to new technology, whether it was the internet in the 90s or 3D scanning and printing more recently. Um, mm. Was there any particular event or situation that led, that led you to take interest in these unexplored fields? Um, well, 
Actually, I've been online since 1994, and I immediately started using the internet correct creatively. Like the mm-hmm. like the day I saw the internet, <laughs> I had someone teach show me what HTML was, and then I just dropped everything. I quit my job. I started doing HTML uh, for other people, and it became kind of um, my life. But even before then. Um, mm-hmm. I was using computers in for things like uh, photography, you know, uh, making photo collages and things like this in Photoshop and drawing mm-hmm. with, you know, Illustrator for my cl- courses in school. So I've sort of always been a computer uh, junkie in that sense, in, in the sense of like using computers creatively is something I've just naturally always done. As soon as I set my hands on a computer, that was the first thing I thought. So <laughs> what's happened is over time, I've just seen or felt um, different things happening in tech or with with the tools I'm using. Um, it's a relationship that I have to the computer that is leading me in all these directions. I don't really like choose it almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say both games and the sculptural works that I'm doing now um, definitely come from this I sort of... Um, feeling of obligation in a way that mm-hmm. um, I'm in the last generation that knew what life was like without the internet, um, without computers, you know, I grew up, mm-hmm. there were no computers to be found, obviously, in the 80s. Um, but it's, um, it's always felt like um, I need to make these uh, technological art that is also somehow combining this idea of the human, um, either what it means to be human. I think a lot of our video games were like that, or this tactility, this um, idea that things can come out of the virtual and into the real or Mm -hmm. be a real body, a real human person and Mm -hmm. experience almost viscerally a VR environment, you know, bringing yourself into a virtual environment. Mm -hmm. This, this, it needs to be both, you know, for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that also, um, as you said, I mean, you, you of course said that, you know, your generation is probably the last one to have experienced the world uh, mm-hmm. without um, computers or the Internet. And um, I mean, to be honest, I, I can still remember, you know, when I was very young that we still didn't have any computers. <laughs> Yeah. Or or the internet. I remember the very first Windows we had was Windows ninety five mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, do, do you think that probably the reason why you are so interested in the materiality of um, you know digital technology uh, is because you know when you started working with computers and the internet, you know those machines took a lot of space on your desk. It's not yeah. like now, you know, when, when you have like a small laptop or you know like a very small smartphone, and you know, in, yeah. with the device you can do basically anything. Yeah, yeah the, the computers were a very different prospect, and they were a lot more prone to crash uh, <laughs> at my first computers, but somehow I missed that in a way that, that, that uh, almost like the computer getting uh, temperamental or something and crashing out on you and you learn to understand <laughs> yeah. its personality. Uh, uh, and, and now you don't have much of that, like not in the same way. Now com- the computer back then really felt like it was yours. It was more mm-hmm. than a tool. It was like a companion. It was, mm-hmm. it was like, a, you know, it was the thing that you made your work on it was a thing you met your friends on I mean it's like yeah. that now but it also you have this uh, invasive third 
wheel always, which is the corporation, which is like constantly updating your computer when you don't want it to, or making it so you can't run 32 bit apps anymore and all your games are broken or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> so it's not personal anymore or it doesn't yeah. feel as personal it's, anymore. Yeah. We, um, we are not personal computers anymore. Exactly. Yeah. They're not, yeah. They're not yours, you know, but Absolutely. I think that I remember that time from when it was mine and um, when all my computers had names, you know, I gave them cute <laughs> names and, and it always just felt like um, this is the, my collaborator. And I still feel that way, actually, about um, be it my computer or my uh, 3D printers, um, that they're they're collaborating with me on the work, you know. Uh. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of which, um, looking at your projects, I I feel you make art um, despite um, new technology instead mm -hmm. of thanks to it. Um, the way you use cutting-edge devices and techniques makes me forget about the technical achievement behind your works and, you know, pay more attention to the concepts you explore. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me something about your relationship with the tools you use to make art? As you said earlier to me, it's a sort of love-hate um, relationship, isn't it? Yeah, very much. Uh, it, it's... Um... I think I, I, before I used computers much, I was studying sculpture. Um, that's what I did in university. I thought I was mm -hmm. going to be a sculptor, um, a sculptor artist, you know, sort of in the traditional sense. Um, but reasons of space like kept that dream from me at first because I was in New York City and there was no way I could afford a studio. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, I think that uh, technology allowed me to have that big studio with great, amazing lights that I always wanted to have in Manhattan back in the day on the Lower, I was on the Lower East Side. Um, but, uh, and so I kind of took that same sensibility with me um, from my very first website, you know, it's like when um, in 1995 or whenever I first made the websites, um, I, I tried to make sure like that the graphics I was using felt like that plausible in some way like mm -hmm. um i hesitate to say real but like you know that they they had there was a certain tactility to it and mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and as technology evolved i kind of evolved that idea with it to the point where you know after so long i was obsessed with 3d you know because it was sudden finally a way for me to make something um look as real or feel as real as i wanted it to or to give this imagination and i think that that to answer your question more directly, this this idea of, of users of my work or the viewer of my work to have to use their imagination, you know, and it is mm -hmm. important to me. Um, and I'm in most of the time the computer computer generated work doesn't always invite you to do that. Um, the technology, I mean, not the work, but the, the technology doesn't mm -hmm. invite the the artist to create. The yeah, Absolutely. the interface, the interface, the or the the language or whatever isn't um, inviting you to do that as an artist. I think everyone who uses digital technology is always building their own tools or trying to um, find a way around mm -hmm. <laughs> certain limitations, mm -hmm. and that just seems to get worse and worse, worse and worse, which is leading to that love hate thing. Um, but um, so so. 
despite technology, yeah, despite the fact that Facebook owns Oculus, I'm trying to make VR, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. and that's a big thing to try and get around, you know, or I, so I'm trying to make things happen on the web again now, because it seems like you can't get around certain corporate limitations, you know, mm -hmm. the corporation giveth, the corporation taketh away, you know, mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. all the time. Sure. Things are closing, you know. I think that's a very interesting point, um, especially in comparison to, you know, to what used to happen uh, in the past. I'm talking about, you know, the broader uh, context of art mm -hmm. history. I mean, yeah. looking at what painters and, you know, other artists uh, had to do in the past, you know, to, 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 to make their own tools, you can see that there is definitely a split uh in terms of agency between you know what happened even i don't know me even i don't know one century ago and what's happening now with yeah. you know with artists that have to rely on softwares and and hardwares yeah every day you run into a situation where you sort of think try to think of a parallel it's like what if you woke up if a painter woke up one morning and suddenly there was no paint you know, they decided to discontinue <laughs> yeah. paint, you know, yeah. no, paint cannot be used anymore. That's the sort of equivalent of like, you know, Apple deciding you can't run an, an executable file, an app on there without paying for the store. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's 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 just like, OK, my entire uh, <laughs> environment is such that I cannot use my medium, you know. Yeah. Um, and so you try to think of how can you prevent this? Like, what can I work with? Like, what mm -hmm. can I do? And so that's kind of the despite it, you know, it's like, I'm constantly dealing with that environment, even though that's not the content of the work. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. that's like the meta, the thing that's always underneath it. And in some, I think in a lot of our games, we were dealing with this like sort of technological, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, that was like sort of the, the underlying message. Like if you read something like our, our real time art manifesto, where we're, we're talking about like how you can create um, games, game art or art games, like you can be in control of the technology or you can just be someone who is um, sort of repurposing technology. Yeah. Um, and we always wanted to be sort of the ones who were like really creating the technology and, also, like making people see what they could do with things that were pre-made that maybe weren't ex weren't um, expected by the software makers, weren't mm -hmm. expected mm -hmm. by the people, maybe even by your audience. Um, and uh, yeah. that's always been very important to me. Like, I don't know. this Absolutely. Speaking of which, back in 2003, you and your partner, Mikhail Samin, founded Tale of Tales, a groundbreaking project aimed at creating elegant and emotionally rich art for computers, interactive entertainment. Um, in a span of a few years, you developed some of the most influential works in the history of indie video games. I'm quite curious about what was your experience with this um, scene, given your background in, you know, in traditional art. Let's yeah. say that, you know, the scene of video games, especially indie video games, and, you know, uh, what we sometimes call um, as artwork, uh, whether it is a nice or a bad label. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they are just two quite different words. Yeah, it's very much. Uh, but I would say until now, I really um, 
hesitated to engage with the art world at all. Um, I know mm -hmm. that I said I went and studied sculpture and thought I was going to be a sculptor and all that. But quite quickly, when I discovered the Internet, I thought of it as something completely different, mm -hmm. its own thing. Um, as many people who were involved with early net art, like you, you didn't think about all those institutions at all, actually. Mm -hmm. You felt like you were living in a fantasy world where, you know, everybody was on the same level, you know, like you made yeah. your work in the same thing you viewed your work in. And then people would also view your work and contact you. And it was beautiful, you know, so I didn't need the art world then. And then um, after that, you know, I sort of toyed with the art world in the sense that our work was shown around places, you know, our net art was shown in uh, various shows and all that, but it did never felt like I was a part of it at all. Um, and then doing games i i we michael and i really threw ourselves into um being a part of uh the games industry at least at first um mm -hmm. maybe it started as kind of a joke in a way like um you know let's pretend to be a company and let's uh let's make video games and sell them you know and all this mm -hmm. um at, yeah so at first we just gave things away just because we wanted people to know who we were and then all, and then it sort of evolved and indie games started. Like when we started in 2002, 2003, there were no, there was no indie games thing going on, right? No, no, no scene really. I mean, there were mm -hmm. people of course making video games, uh, you know, but it wasn't um, as big. And so it, you know, we were scattered <laughs> and it was only around like 2005 when it really started to be a thing. And, um, and at that point we sort of were like, that's it. That's exactly what we were waiting for. You know, people want to download games. You don't have to put them on discs and put them in stores, which is what used to happen all the time. Um, and so it was very freeing. Again, we were sort of freed by the internet. Um, and uh, it was really a lot of fun sometimes. I'd say, I'd say the first bit, like before 2005, wasn't so much fun because indeed um, we were trying to really be a business like, and mm -hmm. failing. And failing because this is not us, you know, um, but this is what it, we thought it took to make games, you know. And then when indie games became a thing, it was like, OK, now we can just be ourselves. But <laughs> but that was, yes, true. But on the other hand, not, you know, because we had a lot of strange ideas or ideas that were strange at the time. Yeah. You know, things that seem normal now were very taboo back then um, in terms of gaming. There was a lot of um, sort of dogmatic um stuff about mm -hmm. game genres and and who plays games even and what those games are supposed to look like and play like and we just oh, didn't absolutely. accept it you know we didn't accept it at all and so it was just like how can we make it so that our games can live in this world you know was mm -hmm. really our quest you know i'd say from 2005 when we put out the endless forest um, and definitely through 2009, when we put out the path, um, it was just like our mission, no matter what we had to do to do it, we were going to make sure that we could find an audience for what we were making. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, and that took a lot of writing. It took a lot of speaking. It, it, I learned a lot, I would say. It was like my first real my first real career, even though I was already like, you know, in my 30s. It was my first real time I, I put myself like really threw my whole self into something. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, that includes making the games, which is a very laborious thing to do. You know, like one of our games, the path took like three years to make, you know, others were done very quickly. Um, but it was just, it was just a very extreme thing to do, you know? And, um, and, and I think that we actually were able to find other people who thought the same way that we did. And that's, 
actually why games are the way they are now, you know, is that uh, we, along with other people in that period of time, that like sort of formative period of time in the early nine, early two thousands, um, formed together and said, you know, maybe there is something else to this. And we took the heat for it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we we had to literally fight about it like quite often. <laughs> and so it, it was an up and down struggle in some ways. In some ways, I really hated it. Like I, I'd say, Bleh. yeah, there was plenty of times where I was like, why am I doing this <laughs> to myself? <laughs> like exactly why am why I? Why am I enjoying all of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> am I enjoying all of this? Am I enjoying all of this? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I didn't actually know um, until I did, you know, and then we kind of just said, okay, maybe we can step away. But that was 2015, you know, so it was quite a while, quite a ride. Um, we put out eight, um, eight games in that time. And um, yeah.
Quite by accident, I stumbled on the secret of life. I've been bringing small, one-celled creatures to life for quite some time. The secret of life? Within 30 seconds, after this injection, this creature will live. You're trying to play God, Victor. It's heresy. It's science. I'm making a new race, by far finer than the present one. Larger in structure, stronger, heavier, healthier. A race able to live on nuts and berries with a greater capacity for feeling. Victor, for the love of heaven, don't go through with this experiment. No man living has the right to tamper with the secret of life. You've created a monster on that floor. You've no idea what will happen if you go through with this. Watch, Professor. The injection. I only hope and pray this is a failure. It can't be. The chirpy tune you just heard was the new single Californian Ideology by Eric Salvaggio's electro band called The Organising Committee. Now that snippet is obviously Frankenstein that was taken from a radio play ages ago, but it is in reference to a book that will be coming out uh, either the end of May or June, but we'll get back to you regarding that called Frankenstein Reanimated. And it's uh, co-edited with myself and with Yanis uh, Kolakidis. And uh, I think the important thing is that it's going to include lots of other amazing people, which I will tell you more about soon, but that's why I put the link in, because I was quite excited about the publication. The other thing is... Up next, we have uh, Josephine Bodmer interviewing and discussing with Baruch Gottlieb. They have a playful theoretical conversation about post-most talk. claim that in theories we could place the word post in front of it with most. Can you clarify that position? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I recognize that uh, what, how post works in, in the academy. So generally there's a school, um, there's a, a, a group of thinkers which emerge which kind of coalesce around a term that might be might retroactively or even at that time find a name like modernism or feminism or uh, communism and and then uh, that is that kind of coalesces historically as a school and then people say okay well that school has now become somehow foundational we, we've moved on from that. We're, we're building off of that to some extent, but we want to, you know, designate a kind of divergence. And so they attribute post to that. So the first time I encountered post in a, in a way that I really wanted to reflect on it was when I was invited to talk somewhere that was called Post Media Lab. I mean, they, I ignored them, first of all, because I thought this is a stupid name and I didn't, uh, I, I thought, well, how can anything be post media? If anything, we are in you know, hypermedia or, you know, an intensification of media. So what are they talking about? 
but then I understood. They told, they explained it to me that uh, they were thinking of post-German media theory. That, but it was just a, an abbreviation. It was like post-media lab. So the media was an abbreviation. The post-media was a, an abbreviation for post-German media theory. So actually, they were, you know, trying to distinguish themselves from the previous what had coalesced historically is to be referred to as German media theory you know, the school around Kittler, etc. So I thought, okay, but, you know, uh, uh, the response would be for me to turn that post into most, right? Because we don't even know what we were talking about in the first place. Like, if we really, before we think that we can build on cannons, on cannons, on cannons, uh, maybe we should look at what, you know, we're really talking about. So that's the, that's the uh, provocation that I wanted to put forward there with, uh, and I, I find it personally um, helpful. So it's not just flip, it is irreverent. I mean, I'm Canadian, so I like to take things a little bit less seriously than they're commonly taken. And I, I understand that that can rub people the wrong way. But the idea is that really to, 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 to take, take our, our uh, calling seriously, if we do have, have commitments to try to improve understanding and thereby uh, generate agency uh, and political agency in this world, then we really got to get our feet on the ground and understand what we're talking about. So uh, for me to say instead of postmodernism, modernism that means like, well, actually, you know, uh, the situation we're living in today is an intensification of modernist principles, not, I mean, in, as much as it has, you know, as much as we can discuss it as being a building off of the principles of, of modernism. You know, that we, I want to put point to the intensification of, of, of um, foundational practices or, or foundational structures, uh, rather than having this, this departure notion, which Post seems to have. Does it also imply that it's very difficult to leave the past behind? I, yeah, I, I consider that it's, impossible i mean i think it's it's not uh you can to to some degree you can try to forge a new path but i think that more or less i think most people would agree that's pretty difficult and and vain and besides i mean what you discover as like if you're if you work as an artist or if you work as a very adventurous uh, thinker somebody who's doing things really on the edge of what has been thought before or tried before is that people don't really understand you unless mm. you unless you're using tropes that are from before. That's like McLuhan's rearview mirror trope, where he he says that you know we we cannot really experience uh, our contemporary uh, world the way the way the way it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too unfamiliar, and uh, so we need to call on tropes from the past and kind of make analogies to to what we're what we're seeing now uh so we always see the the present in the rearview mirror that's that's McLuhan yeah so no I don't think you can leave the past behind I think all those I mean Sarah Sharma is also really good with that like uh this this male dream of exit from a difficult circumstance a troubling circumstance so the men can always leave the women have to clean up after the men and I think we're moving away from a, a, a set of values in, in our societies where uh, that kind of adventure, that male adventurousness 
pioneering adventurousness has lost a lot of its allure. And we're seeing that, you know, a lot of men's adventurousness has been made up for by, uh, you know, reproductive labor compensating for all the all the disruption and destruction that that adventurousness has uh, brought about. Can you give examples where uh, this replacement of most post by most works mm -hmm. best, like works really well? Yeah, I think definitely in my practice, most modernism, postmodernism, most modernism. Well, you think about what modernism really is when we're talking about modernism. Like Jacques Rancière says, um, it's intensification of special specialization. So it's when when we we start to specialize materials, we we build materials especially for particular purposes. So what you see in like in, in modernist architecture is that you see a standardization of building materials. And that leads to a kind of aesthetic that we call modernist, but actually the the, the standardization is the modern modernism at the basis of the aesthetical expression of that, like in, in architecture or in, in painting or so. So that this hyper standardization. So instead of saying that, that I mean that the instead of saying that we are in a postmodern period where where <coughs> where there's this new layer of a freedom of like uh, uh, transgressiveness where we we're using more maybe more ornamentation or I don't know or we we're we're relativizing I guess postmodernism is also related to to relativization of of um, of foundational concepts uh, I'm saying no we got to look at we got to look more carefully at what what how modernism itself has transformed us so deeply and actually what we are experiencing in postmodernism is an intensification of modernism it's most modernism the same i same way i can say with post-industrial i think it's, you can you can use the same logic with that right it's like we're not post-industrial we can see that the industrial processes are have been miniaturized and and uh inside our devices i mean what we're talking to each other through a hyper-industrial device where the actual uh, industrial processes of you know channeling bits of information in, in electronic form are uh, there's a there's a whole whole assembly line inside your machine right that is producing these sounds uh, yes. of our voices mm -hmm. so that's a hyper industrialization it's not post industrial right yeah. but yeah. That, that that i mean but of course i'm talking in two, in two ways i'm kind of talking cross purposes cuz like in scholarship you can say well there's like kind of industrial with industrial critique or uh, industrial Industrialism, I'm not sure, but anyway, post-industrial is a, is a term that attempts to distinguish not only a state of, of development of, of productive forces, but also um, a state of discourse, like a distinct discourse that is post-industrial. Post-internet is another good one, just the last okay. one. Post-internet okay. art, right? Like, isn't it most internet art? I mean, isn't it like really the intensification of the internet that's like Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the third one. I guess that on, the only problem I would have is with post-contemporary. <laughs> do, you, do you even see that one fitting? <laughs> it's Again, a post-contemporary art. Yeah. yeah, of course. Contemporary art is also like, I mean, I can understand it in terms of like the school of contemporary art or contemporary art criticism and saying like, we had an understanding of what contemporary art was, and now we want to leave that behind to some extent, or, or you know, I mean, like 
yeah, like post-capitalism or something. But um, uh, can we? First of all, contemporary, the whole, the whole I mean, the, the, the chronological implications of post-contemporary is, uh, okay, uh, you mean future art? I mean, what do you mean? Contemporary is now, right? Contemporary is of, of the time. Okay, so... Uh, what so it's maybe a feed-forward concept. Um, yeah, that's that's why I like this uh, replacement of post by most so much because it also attacks this linear form of thinking about our time yeah. and uh, our society. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and like let's let's think about. I mean, of course, you know, my 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 irreverent provocation is just to let uh, to encourage people to let's let's gather around what we're really talking about here you know and uh, and because like when we define our reality by certain terms and then we we multiply we derive various posts and and variants of that term uh, it's sometimes good to see what we're what what's grounding that whole uh, intellectual and creative industry around the the term um, I find it really, really valuable. I mean, uh, although you know, um, uh, Deborah Solomon's uh, suggestion in the in the in the Facebook um, thread was uh, was also good, right? The moist, <laughs> moist. Okay. Right? <laughs> the moist I think we should, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good one too. I think we should leave it with this. Okay. Thank you very much. I think this is uh, this has been very insightful. Okay. Well, uh, grateful for the opportunity. Always nice to talk with you, Josephine. I started walking. Some friends were nearby. I felt the presence of a crowd approaching. Fast, lover, shouts like. Then I felt hands. But this time I was called and protected. It's a performance, my performance. I walked eight minutes. I could not finish. I had to escape fast. I went into hiding. But I did it.
I started walking. Okay, so that was the brilliant AGF stroke poem producer. And that track is called The Radical Self featuring Kubra Kademi. Next up is Filippo Florenzin interviewing Morishin Alahari and how her work deals with the political, social and cultural contradictions we face every day. So hello everybody, today I'm with an artist, activist, writer and educator whose work deals with the political, social and, cult- and cultural contradictions we face every day. She has been part of numerous exhibitions, festivals and workshops around the world, including Venice Biennale di Architettura, New Museum, Pompidou Centre, Tate Modern, among many, many, many others. She once stated that she wants more serious, more radical, more emotional and poetic and challenging works around her. Let's welcome Moreshin Alayari. Thanks for joining me today, Moreshin. How are you? Hi, Filippo. Thank you for that introduction and for having me. I'm good. One of the main aspects of your research is the critical approach to technology used by governments and corporations to explore their creative potential by using them for artistic purposes. Um, Can you tell me something about the origin of your interest in this subject? Yeah, absolutely. So I think from, you know, a young age as a teenager, probably, I was always interested in technology and digital technologies around me. At a time, I was living in Iran. So, um, you know, my access to technology and also my relationship to technology was always Um, a little bit challenging, you know, from access to the internet, which was very slow and would get disconnected all the time when I was using it, you know, back in the day with a dial-up system to other tools around me. So I think, you know, that experience really made me understand that technology and access to technology is not something to be taken for granted. Um, And so later on, I immigrated to the United States for my um, graduate studies, and uh, I chose to study digital media studies for my MA and new media art for my MFA. And uh, being in, you know, these like environments where uh, using of technology was, you know, thought through critical thinking, um, and also ways that I could bring together um, these, uh, you know, theories and political poetic thinking uh, toward these tools. Uh, and of course, um, also like my background on, in my undergrad, I studied media theory and social science. So that was already something that was, I would say, built in into my brain. My brain was wired toward uh, ways that I could consider uh, these kind of like use as something that goes beyond you know, this idea of technology for technology's sake. As I continue to work as an artist, I also uh, obviously, you know, became more and more involved in the tech field uh, and going from going to, um, you know, different events and conferences to doing a residency at a place like Autodesk uh, in San Francisco. If some of you are listening and don't know what Autodesk is, it's... um, you know, basically a, a tech company uh, known for creation of software like Maya, AutoCAD, uh, a lot of basically 3D software. And so being in an environment like that, I really got to experience 
um, this very, I would say, binary view toward technology um, of the tech world of Silicon Valley. Um, not that before that I didn't know about it. I knew about it, but just being there for one and a half year at this environment, I really got to understand the distance that I felt with a lot of people around me working at these companies. And so the more I work at these uh, spaces, the more I became interested in ways that I could really interrupt these systems, like we turn around these power structures. So the, for example, the use of 3D scanners and 3D printers at the time was something that I started to you know, apply and uh, kind of do pro- different projects with. Uh, but that was definitely the, the beginning of this kind of exploration of uh, these tools. Now, you mentioned something um, earlier about access and, techno- and technology. I think that's a very interesting um, subject. I think it's something that sometimes is ignored, um, you know, um, when, when, when critics and artists talk about um, new media art. Uh, sometimes I have a feeling that, you know, sometimes I have a feeling that when you say that your work is online, you know, that's, that's just accessible for everybody. And, you know, it, it's not very true, especially with uh, some recent um, online works that, you know, demand uh, devices and, you know, and platforms that are not available to everybody. So that's certainly um, another aspect that your, you know, that your research, uh, I think, uh, touches. Um, sp- Speaking of which, um, your use of 3D scanning and printing reminds me of a story I read once about what the first Spanish colonizers did um, as as soon as they arrived in South America in the 16th century. Um, Along with soldiers and army men, there were scholars with the task of creating as many maps as possible of the new um, undiscovered territories. Um, in other words, the first action taken by those who want to dominate something um, is the evaluation of the thing itself, whether it is a mountain or a whole group of people. Um, to scan, archive, and have at disposal digital 3D models of artifacts or buildings, even for conservation purposes, I think you know that brings cultural and political questions. So, you know, for $1 million, what's your opinion about museums being enthusiastic, so enthusiastic about this technology and preservation strategy? Yeah, well, I have trust issues with them. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is something that I have been very much studying and thinking about and giving lectures about for the last five, six years. When I started myself using these uh, 3D scanner, 3D printers tools, I also like noticed, you know, as these tools became more more and more trendy at a time, this is just to give you a little bit of context of time. It's in 2014, 2015, um, where these technologies, uh, you know, uh, were like developing very fast. And uh, also like at a time we had rise of um, extreme groups like ISIS and the Middle East. So there was a lot of destruction of, cultural heritage that was happening uh, in the Middle East. Um, so I feel like all these events kind of came side to side and like ended up uh, becoming uh, what I criticize as digital colonialism. This idea that a lot of these uh, tech companies and Western-based archaeologist spaces uh, use these uh, tools, spe- especially 3D scanners, 
to go to different parts of the uh, the the you know global south um, and 3D scan these artifacts and cultural um, heritage sites. And then they bring back this material, uh, and in many cases, they own the copyright of this digital data. Uh, they don't give free or open access, even to the government of the countries that they scan these cultural uh, cultural artifacts um, in. So uh, this 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 problem, and then expands into you know years and years, obviously, of like how museums have worked, but also to how museums currently dealing with. Uh, digital preservation. Um, so when you walk into, I don't know, the Met or or, or the British Museum, um, we already see this problem existing. I mean, if we want to think about it critically, that you see a, 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 a sculpture, an artifact, a huge gate uh, taken from somewhere um, in, you know, countries um, that, you know, you can question how how they got there and like what was the story behind them. And a lot of times their story is that they were, they were um, smuggled or like taken without uh, permission or taken during war or different kind of conflicts or like collectors, not that the museum took them, right? The collectors or like different people somehow getting their hand on them and then um, step by step going to different places and then it ending up at a museum as a donation or again, different circumstances. So um, I'm obviously always uh, looking for these stories. When, even when I like walk into a museum like that, um, I try to pay attention to the donor's name and the story behind that. Uh, try to kind of like see where it came from, what year it was. Um, and this again is a problem that continues when we think about the digital preservation of, of these um, cultural sites um, and something that, you know, I think we have to keep questioning. We have to keep um, writing about, talking about, and and pushing the, the museums to be more responsible, right, about um, these issues. Oh, absolutely. That's also um, a subject that always reminds me. I don't know if you ever visited the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Did you? I don't know if you remember, but there, there are. I don't know if you visited. Uh, the museum when both uh, the galleries were open, but uh, one of the most peculiar, let's say, one of the most peculiar area of the museum uh, is the cast court. So basically, it's this big gallery. Now, you know, if the museum is open, I suppose you can visit both the galleries, but basically both uh, contain these uh, copies um, of many different sculptors, of many different uh, buildings, and I, you know, as Italian, I suppose it was a very weird feeling to enter that gallery because, you know, it was just odd to enter this room and see, I don't know, the, the David by Michelangelo next to, I don't know, a sculpture that I, I know, that I knew was somewhere else, like in Venice or Milan. And it was very interesting to see the reaction of, you know, Italian visitors entering that room because they always felt, the very first question was always, how, how were they able to smuggle all of these in here? How were they able to steal, um, you know, our works in this museum? And it's quite, I think, you know, of course, the story of museums stealing and, you know, and, and, 
um, and taking artifacts from somewhere else. But I, I just wonder, for example, like in, in this specific case, the copies were, were bought by the first directors of that museum to, 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 to make the life easier for people living in London that couldn't afford to go to Italy, to go to Spain, to go to France. And, you know, just, you know, at, at the cost of one ticket, you were able to see all, all of these uh, different um, artworks from all over Europe or even, you know, beyond Europe. Um, but I suppose that something that misses in this conversation, in this discussion, is the uh, framing of these copies. And I have a feeling that, you know, digital copies sometimes are represented by museums as if they were, you know, available just by themselves without actually uh, framing them, uh, you know, in relation to the technology that, ha that has been used to make them or, you know, or the, the, the reasons why they were uh, made. So that's definitely another aspect that your work touches, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to add one thing else is that probably agree that it's nice to share cultural experiences. It's not nice for a museum to have like, let's say a work of another country, but like these things could be done in a way that is much more ethical. For example, maybe there's an artifact that is from another country that can be on exhibition for like a duration of time and then be sent back to, you know, that country. Or like the experience you were talking about of all these um, sculptures from Italy, it could be like, you know, like a durational exhibition where like they bring it and people who want to experience it can experience it and then they can be sent back. And I think there are so many, I mean, I'm just giving you one example, but like there's so many ways that we can reimagine how these kind of cultural sharing and, you know, kind of um, acts of enjoying each other's like culture, et cetera, can be done through ethical practices. Um, and I do think like, there's still so much room for museums and institutions to practice these these kinds of um, you know methods of dealing with these issues. Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. Um, I'd like to discuss um, about she who sees the unknown, your most recent work. Um, for the ones who don't know what it is, um, it's an ongoing project for which uh, you recreate monstrous female and queer figures of Middle Eastern origin using the traditions and myths associated with them to explore the catastrophes of colonialism, patriarchism, and environmental degradation in relationship to the Middle East. Um, folklore traditions and cutting-edge technology converge and offer an original perspective on both thanks to your presence, to your imagination. I wonder if you can elaborate about this point, the biographical aspect of this and, you know, and many other projects you worked on in the past. Um, yeah, so this is a project, just to give you like a little bit of background, I started to work on uh, Originally, because I was really interested in uh, why these like female or slash queer genderless figures from Middle Eastern, you know, methodologies uh, have not been talked about or their stories haven't been told or highlighted through like many, many years of growing up and, you know, living in Iran and reading a lot of poetry and literature and uh, mythology, which are all really important part of our culture, 
there was always these figures that were only male, you know? So I kind of wondered like, where are the, the figures that could be, you know, again, female or in terms of like gender, like non-binary that I could find their story. So um, that was kind of like the beginning of, of this research. And four years later, it's actually the project is done. I'm just doing the final um, archival aspect of it where I'm going to be releasing um, an archive, which maybe we can talk about, uh, you know, in a bit. Um, but these are, you know, as part of the project, uh, there are five figures that I focus on. Uh, they are mostly gen figures, gen or, you know, genie, as you might know in English, um, that gen are originally within Islamic uh, mythologies and also, uh, uh, you know, in the Quran, are talked about as creatures that are made of smokeless fire uh, and they are you know one of the creatures that like humans have will so they can decide uh, to obey or disobey they can um, you know kind of be your friend to possess other things or you might be possessed by them also growing up in Iran and I know that this is an experience for a lot of my friends who grew up in other countries in the Middle East uh, we learn a lot about the jinn. You know, we have stories that are told by our, you know, family members and grandmothers to us about them encountering the jinn or stories of someone else encountering a jinn in a, in a space. So there, that figure of the jinn is kind of very important culturally. And also I thought when I started to work on this body of work, um, a figure that hasn't really been explored um, in a way that I was like interested in like exploring. So the five um, figures are Huma, Ya'juj Majuj, um, the Laughing Snake, Aisha Kandisha, and the last one is Kabus. And they each have a different story. You know, I find them from uh, multiple resources, um, you know, from a book like Kitab al-Bulhan or the Book of Wonders. Uh, these are resources that are from, let's say, you know, 14, 1500 years ago to seven, 800 years ago. And I find the illustrations and I like change them around a little bit and then create my own uh, basically illustration and also 3D models of them, which then becomes um, a sculptural and installation elements. Uh, and for each of these figures, I also write a new story. So based on what that specific figure is known as, let's say Huma, who is known as a gen that brings fever to human body, or Kabus, who is a gen um, that is known to cause sleep paralysis and um, nightmares. So based on what they are, I kind of use their stories and then turn them around to connect them to um, something in relationship to now or thinking through, you know, the reimagination of um, alternative futures. Um, and the stories can be personal in many ways or, uh, you know, they can be a little bit more of um, like a collective experience. Uh, but like a lot of the work that I do, uh, I am really interested in ways that I can find a space between uh, personal and a more of a collective experience. I think a lot of them fall into that hybrid space. Um, well, you know, that was actually the last question. And <laughs> um, I think um, that's, that's pretty much all of it. I'm just going to stop the recording now. Uh, okay.